0: I have to give a little bit of a plug before we get started this morning for the Bible study this evening. We are on Revelation chapter 20. Um, A little later in the service this morning, I will be quoting Douglas Wilson, who says this is a highly symbolic passage in a highly symbolic text in a highly symbolic book. And there's so much in Revelation 20 that's just too hard to address within the confines of of a Sunday morning sermon. So I'm going to do my best. I'm going to divide the sermon in two pieces. We'll have one part, then you can stand up and hum along with a song and get blood flowing again, and then we'll come back for round two. But even at that, I won't be able to address everything that needs to be addressed to answer the questions that exist on this subject of the thousand years. So the um, two things. I will not only put out the transcript of this morning's message on the website this afternoon, I will also put out my study notes, which are the basis for the Bible study. So you can look over those, and if you look over them and think, I want to know more, then come to the Bible study or log into the Bible study on Zoom this evening, and we'll be going back through those notes in more detail to look at some of this more specifically but as we turn our hearts to the word this morning let's look quickly to the lord in prayer father open our hearts give us understanding of what your spirit would say to us and of what this text says to us that father we may not come to your word looking for what we expect to be there but rather come to your word expecting that you will speak to us in ways that will transform our lives into the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ, that we may live for his glory and for yours. We pray in his holy name. Amen. So once, a very long time ago, when I lived in Alabama, I was at a church service out in the country. And, you know, you can kind of imagine a country church in Alabama, and they were trying to give directions to a church picnic that was happening a little bit later in the day. And so one of the gentlemen from the church had gotten up, and in this very pleasant southern drawl, which I cannot begin to imitate, the man giving the announcement said, the first thing that you need to realize is that you can't get there from here. You have to go someplace else to start. And that is the case with our text this morning. If we want to get beneath the surface and truly understand what the Holy Spirit is saying through the Apostle John in Revelation 20, we will have to go someplace else to start. Specifically, we will have to go to a very first century, New Testament understanding of some of the most basic texts that we claim to understand as they were originally intended, and then we'll have to take that understanding and we'll have to bring it back to Revelation chapter 20. For example, Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. This will not be on the screen, so if you want to turn there, please grab a Bible. Romans 6, verses 1 through 4. In that passage, the Apostle Paul wrote, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Now pay careful attention. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Watch the tense of the verbs in these passages that we're going to look at. We have died to sin. How can we still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And the, the struggle bringing in a text like that is to not preach that text. But Paul's talking about now. Now. He's not saying that we were baptized into Christ's death so that we can be raised up at some future time to walk in newness of life. He's saying we were baptized spiritually into his death so that we could be raised up spiritually to walk in newness of life in the here and now. And what about John chapter 11, verses 21 to 26? John 11, 21 to 26. In this passage, Jesus has come to the tomb of his friend Lazarus, who has been dead and in the tomb for four days. And as he draws near, Martha, Lazarus' sister, says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Which is a pretty direct way of saying to Jesus, this is, this is kind of your fault. Fair enough. Martha would have been aware of at least some of the healing miracles that Jesus had performed. And there can be no doubt that it was with that awareness in mind that they had summoned Jesus in the first place when Lazarus became ill. So she believed that if she called for Jesus and if he got there in time, then Lazarus could be healed Before this illness took him. But Martha's faith is really bigger than that. She said, Lord, even if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, even now that my brother is dead, I know that God will give you whatever you ask from him. Now Jesus, knowing what it is that she wants, turns to her and says, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. But here comes the test. Here comes the test of Martha's faith and of our faith. In verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Okay. But here's the hard part. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And I know I've put this out there before, but let me ask all of you here in the sanctuary and joining us from home, do you believe this? Do you believe... That everyone who is physically alive and believes in Jesus, that would be every true Christian, can never and shall never die. Now, we're not talking about physical death, obviously. But do we believe the message that's coming through in the word of Christ here? He who lives and believes in me shall never die. It's the word of Christ. So we have to say that... We believe it, but do we really believe what we say we believe, or is this one of those times when we keep on using that word, but it really doesn't mean what we think it means? And I'm not saying that it isn't difficult at times, it is. I remember late in the evening of Good Friday 2015 when my sister called to tell me that my mom had passed away. I had my sermon for Easter a couple of days later all ready to go. But I sat there and I thought about my mom's death and my thoughts immediately went to this text in John 17 and it was like Jesus was quizzing me the way he did Martha so long ago. Like he was asking, did your mom live and believe in me? Well, now that you mention it, yes, she did. And You remember that I said, he who lives and believes in me shall never die, right? Well, yes, Lord, I remember something about that. And do you, David Swinney, do you believe this? So I went straight over to the office that evening and I rewrote my Easter sermon based on this text from the Gospel of John because this is what we say we believe. He who lives and believes in Jesus shall never die, but I wonder sometimes if we really do. There are other texts that we could talk about, and of course so many that time would fail, but just, just one more this morning before we move on. Ephesians chapter 2. No, not the part that you have probably memorized, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and so on. The part that comes before that. Verses 1 through 7. We'll start with verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Okay, so we we've got a handle on what Paul is saying there, right? Paul is writing to people who were physically alive in the world at the time that he was writing to the saints at Ephesus, part of the Ephesian church. He's writing to them and saying, "And you were Past tense, dead. Paul wrote to the Ephesians, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And not only is this the lot of the Ephesians, Paul tells them and he tells us that it is in fact the common lot of all of mankind. This being dead in our trespasses and sins, is what it means to be lost, to be outside of Christ, to be by very nature the children of wrath. And that is a description that Paul applies to the rest of mankind. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. The thing is, Paul points out that we were walking around in those same trespasses and sins. So Ephesians, even though it is not an installment in the Walking Dead graphic novel series, is in fact saying that outside of Christ, apart from the salvation that we have through faith in Jesus, spiritually speaking, we are the walking dead. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, but we're walking about following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, that is, following, gladly, our old adversary, the devil. Every now and then I end up in one of those conversations, you've probably had them yourselves, with someone who wants to make the point, but don't you think that most people, if not all people, are basically good? And the honest the goodness truth is there probably is some kind of civil goodness, and put scare quotes around civil goodness. There probably is some kind of civil goodness in most people. I've heard it said that even Hitler was kind to his dog. So there's some Goodness, humanly speaking, in most people, if not all people. But at the bottom line, according to Ephesians chapter 2, all people, not most people, are not basically, they are essentially dead. We come into this world kicking and screaming, but nevertheless already dead in our trespasses and sins. And outside of Christ, that's where we stay. It's a bleak picture of what it means to be human. And if the scriptures left it there, then we might be tempted to just get up and go home in despair. But they don't. Paul goes on in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ By grace, you have been saved. Look at that again. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in mercy, made us alive. And notice when he did it. He made us alive together with Christ. In other words, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too have been, past tense, made alive. We have been, past tense, made alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Not only have we been made alive with him, according to the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, not only have we been made alive together with Christ, we have also been raised up with him and seated with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming age he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And we believe that. Ephesians 2 is one of the principal passages that we go to to try to understand our salvation by grace through faith in Christ. But in order to understand our salvation by grace through faith in Christ, we have to understand this. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. And by grace you have been saved through faith means that you were not only Merely dead, but please forgive me for this in advance. Really, most sincerely dead. To borrow a line from the Wizard of Oz. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Not sick. Not a little under the weather in your trespasses and sins. Dead. But God made you alive. God brought you from death and trespasses and sins to spiritual life, he resurrected you. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, 2 Corinthians five seventeen, he is a new creation. The old has passed. The dead man has died. A little strange twist on things from Romans chapter 6. The old has passed. Behold, the new has come. God made you alive and he raised you up. You not only were resurrected with Christ, you ascended with Christ and are now. Contrary to what you might see as you look around you here in the sanctuary or at home in your living room, you are right now at this very moment seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ. Now this is hard because One of the things I didn't emphasize probably as much as I should as we went through the book of Revelation is that none of it is, and I hate to say it this way, but none of it's real in the shadow sense that we perceive reality. You can't get into a spaceship and fly out to the farthest reaches of the galaxy and find heaven, some physical place where there's a physical throne where God has a physical body and he is sitting there and the lamb is to his right hand and all of these things that John is describing are literally going on you cannot do that because there is no such place God is spirit, no one has seen God at any time and heaven is a spiritual place if I were to ask where is heaven a lot of people would say well that's, that's where God is But if I were to ask, independent of that question, where is God, a lot of people would just say, well, God is everywhere. So, by extension, right? Heaven is a spiritual realm, not a geographic location. And so it's hard for us to think in terms of being raised up and seated with Christ when we think of the imagery that we find in the book of Revelation as some kind of a literal place. But if we think it's not, It was a vision that John was given to communicate some truth. Well, we have been raised up with Christ, in Christ, and we have been seated with him in heavenly places, and that's where we are. That's not a promise for the future. That is a reality for today, and it has real-world implications. And this is all the understanding that we have to bring with us to Revelation chapter 20 when we read there in verse 4, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. I don't get bogged down in a thousand years just yet. We'll get there. If not in this service, we'll get there this evening. But remember what's on the screen right now. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years in the context Of Ephesians chapter 2 which says you were dead in your trespasses and sins but God who is rich in mercy made you alive together with Christ they came to life and raised you up and seated you with him in heavenly places they came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The only question is do you believe this? Do you really believe what we say we believe about the true meaning of the one who said he is the resurrection and the life? Anyone who lives and believes in him will never die. It's not something we can do on our own. So coming back to Revelation chapters 19 and 20 um, and Speaking of Jesus as the rider on the white horse in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16, Douglas Wilson wrote, I might mention in passing that to identify this description erroneously as the second coming helps set up the text in the next chapter in which we find the millennium with a premillennial understanding. If the second coming is in chapter 19 and the millennium is in chapter 20, well, there you go which is, of course, true. If we erroneously looked at this book as if chapter by chapter, verse by verse, we have this chronological story that we could chart on a timeline, then we might leap to that conclusion, and I believe we'd probably be in error because there are no chapter breaks. As we've said so many times before, there are no paragraph headings or even verse numbers in the Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. There's no division between the visions of chapter 19 and those of chapter 20. Actually, we are still in a cycle of visions that began way back at the beginning of chapter 17, when one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls carried John away in the spirit into a wilderness and subsequently gave him a vision of the faithless bride to put it in polite terms, sitting on a beast with seven heads and ten horns. The beast, as we've seen over and over again, though it exists in the image of the dragon, the beast is the Roman Empire in the days of Nero. And the false prophet, or I'm sorry, the false bride was apostate Israel. The new Babylon, who is described as being drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. So everything since Revelation chapter 17 verse 1 up to where we are today has been part of that vision. And that vision actually continues to chapter 21 verse 9 when John will get carried away yet again by another of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues. Remember, one of the ways that Revelation naturally divides is in looking at where is John as he sees these visions. There's several points along the way where he says, I was here in the Spirit, or I was carried away in the Spirit into a wilderness, and this is what I saw. And so this vision that began in chapter 17, verse 1, when John was carried away in the Spirit to a wilderness, continues until chapter 21, verse 9, when he will be carried away in another direction. If the Lord is willing, we're going to come to that in just a couple of weeks. But for now, there's just a lot in chapter 20. Um, There's a lot that's going to have to wait for the Bible study this evening. And this chapter being quite crucial to our understanding of the book, I'd encourage you to make the time. Make the time, take the time. If this is a subject on which you have questions, if it's interesting or even very confusing to you. But one aspect of all of this that we cannot fail to notice this morning, as we did last Lord's Day, is the direct connection of chapter 20 verses 1 through 3 with chapter 19 verses 17 through 21. Revelation chapter 12 and 13 introduced us to the three principal antagonists in covenant history. We were introduced there in chapter 12 to the dragon, the great red dragon, that is the ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan. In chapter 13, we were introduced to the beast from the sea, that is the Roman Empire, and the beast from the land, named in chapter 19 as the false prophet. Again, apostate Israel and her leaders. Now in the intervening chapters, we've seen these players finally revealed for exactly who they are. But we've seen that against the backdrop of their imminent destruction. And now in chapters 19 and 20, that destruction will be revealed in quick succession. As the rider on the white horse, he who is king of kings and lord of lords, Jesus the Christ, the son of the living God, as he goes forth... First, at the end of chapter 19, we read that the beast and the false prophet are captured. And these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Now, of course, we're already in some deep weeds here at this point. If we are inclined to take a literalistic view of the lake of fire, then we want to push this off to the end of time for some reason. But understanding that the lake of fire here in Revelation is simply a metaphor. Now don't, don't go home and say, Pastor David doesn't believe in hell. I most certainly do. Um, Pastor David doesn't believe in eternal torment or eternal judgment. I most certainly do. That's just not what John is talking about here when he talks about the lake of fire. What he's doing here is using that as a metaphor for the final and complete destruction of the beast and the false prophet. What we see here when it talks about them being thrown alive into the lake of fire is kind of a combination of some imagery that's taken from the Old Testament. There were places in the Old Testament where fire fell, you remember Sodom and Gomorrah and other places where fire fell from heaven and destroyed people. You might also remember that time in the rebellion of Korah and Dathan and Abiram when they chose to challenge Moses and God opened the ground and they were taken down alive, the Hebrew says, into Sheol, into the grave. They were swallowed alive just as the beast and the false prophet here are thrown alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. It is a complete and final judgment and destruction that corresponds to chapter 19, verse 3, which told us that the smoke from Jerusalem's destruction would ascend forever and ever. Clearly, that was not a literal statement but it was a statement that Jerusalem, insofar as she represented that Old Covenant system, which the writer to the Hebrews tells us was already obsolete and near to disappearing, was going to be destroyed and was not coming back. God is not ever going to go back and deal with Israel on the basis of the Old Covenant. There will never again be sacrifices that would be pleasing to God, even if there was a third temple and an altar to sacrifice them on in the city of Jerusalem. Such sacrifices would be intrinsic denials of the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. The blood of bulls and goats could not avail to take away our sin, and it will not avail to take away sin in the future. There is only one sacrifice. It was offered by Jesus on the cross, and once it was offered, that whole system became obsolete. And about 40 years later, it disappeared from the face of the earth. It was destroyed with the beast of Rome. The Roman beast would take a little while longer to completely die, but it would suffer a similar fate, and that fate was sealed by the coming of the kingdom of Christ, who Daniel describes as a stone cut without human hands that would strike the empires of the world on their and would blast them to smithereens. I think that's the literal Hebrew, smithereens, or dust, or something like that. But this stone would strike the image that Nebuchadnezzar dreamed of. It would be just crushed into dust, and it would be blown away like chaff before the wind. And in striking the image, that little stone cut without hands from the mountain would become a great mountain. A kingdom set up by the God of heaven that shall never be destroyed nor left to another people, according to Daniel chapter 2. So understand, Rome as an empire wouldn't really be completely finished for a couple of centuries yet. But the end was guaranteed at that point when they turned against Old Covenant Israel, the false prophet, and then having destroyed her, they decided to go after the Christians whom they perceived to be just another part of Old Covenant Israel. So where the church was persecuted by the Jews in its early days, it was the Sanhedrin who passed sentence and stoned Stephen. By AD 70, it was becoming the Roman Empire who would persecute the church and God would have it them as well. So having achieved the destruction of two of the three, the beast and the false prophet, he who has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, Jesus, the king of kings and lord of lords, rides on in majesty, truly in majesty this time, to deal with his final adversary and ours, the devil." So, even as we read that the sword from his mouth is laying waste all those who would stand in opposition, he sends another angel from the throne from heaven. And that angel comes in the first three verses of chapter 20 and he seizes the dragon and he binds him for a thousand years such that he might not deceive the nations any longer. And having bound him, he casts him into the abyss and seals the abyss over him until the thousand years were ended, inaugurating and defining this gospel age in which we live. We have so much more to say about that, so much more about the meaning of a thousand years. But join us, please, please join us this evening. But for now, let it suffice to say that to treat the reference to a thousand years as the primary interpretive pivot for the whole of the book of Revelation, as if we are looking for tidbits about the end of the world rather than looking for the resurrected and ascended Christ, is, as Douglas Wilson again has written, to take a highly symbolic number in a highly symbolic chapter of a highly symbolic book and ascribe to it an unnecessary and undesirable literalism. He goes on, throughout scripture, a thousand, that expression, a thousand, is used as a placeholder for a very large number. A thousand, for instance, is the number of hills on which God owns the cattle ever stopped to think, he owns the cattle, or the cattle on a thousand hills are mine, says God in the psalm. Well, who owns the cattle on hill 1001? It's not a number that's meant to be taken that way, especially when you have that indefinite article in front of it, the cattle on a thousand hills for a thousand years. A thousand is the number of enemy soldiers that one Israelite will pursue, Now, are we to assume that if Israel was faithful and obedient and they went out to make war, that one Israelite soldier would have been good for exactly 1,000 Philistines? Not 999 and not 1,001, but exactly a literal 1,000. Absolutely not. It's just saying that if you are faithful and obedient, when you go out to war, your enemies will flee before you. More important still, a thousand is the number of generations with whom God keeps covenant. Are we to assume that when the Bible teaches us that God keeps His promises, He keeps His covenant to a thousand generations of those who fear Him, that He's ticking off boxes? Well, you're up oh, generation a thousand one, not keeping those promises anymore. How absurd. A thousand is a placeholder for a large number, indeterminate in its scope. And here in the book of Revelation, it's similar to what the psalmist said in Psalm 90, verse 4, where he wrote, For a thousand years in thy sight are but yesterday when it is past, and as a watch in the night. It's a figurative, symbolic number. And this number is given to us in Revelation to highlight This one fact, that the extent and length of Satan's binding will be as long as it needs to be for God to accomplish his purpose in the church. Satan is bound very specifically in this way, that he might not deceive the nations any longer. That was something that he did throughout the old covenant era, right up to the point when Jesus died and rose and ascended to the right hand of the Father and all authority in heaven and on earth was given to him. There's an expression in the New Testament that was translated, I think in older versions, the God of this world. And sometimes people quote it that way. Satan is not and never was the God of this world. He was the God of that age. That's the actual, it's eon. In Greek, it's talking about the God of a particular age. He is not now the God of this world. He is not the king of anything. He does not rule over anything. Period. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Does that sound like something that we could do to the God of this world? And what's wrong with the idea of, of looking at it? Because we give him way too much credit. We ascribe unto him sometimes almost as much power as we are willing to ascribe unto the Lord God, the Almighty, who if he chose to do so could make Satan wink out of existence by failing to uphold his existence. It's that simple. We don't live in a dualistic universe where evil and good are almost balanced, and we just need to tip those scales toward the side of good. We live in a universe that was made by the God who is good all the time, the God who is the Lord God Almighty the God who sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be king of kings and lord of lords and to triumph over all that is evil and all that is wrong and all that is broken. And Jesus did. And so when it says that Satan is bound that he might deceive the nations no longer, it doesn't mean he has ceased to be. He still is. My brother Matt is going to use the illustration of like a mafia boss who's been put into prison for five consecutive life sentences but who still governs his evil organization. I like the one from William Hendrickson who said that like a big vicious dog on a chain, outside the radius of that chain, there is absolutely nothing that he can do but if you step into the radius of the chain, expect to get torn up a bit. So resisting the devil really is just staying outside the radius, outside the radius of that chain. And Jesus says he will flee. You don't have to know the right incantations or say the right words in the right way. You just have to submit to God, resist the devil, which you do, by the way, by submitting to God, And the devil will flee. Because he has been bound for as long as he needs to be bound. This is the point of that illustration that Jesus gave when he said, no one can plunder the house of a strong man unless he first binds the strong man. Well, Jesus bound him and he is in the process of plundering his house. The nations are being taught the gospel and they are turning to Christ People are being saved. They have been being saved from the day of Pentecost 2,000 some years ago when the Holy Spirit fell on the church and the gospel was proclaimed and people began to turn to God from all the nations, not just from Israel. Jesus is plundering the strong man's house. That's why he Bound him and that binding will last as long as it needs to last for God to fulfill his purpose in the church. What is that purpose? John continues in verse four, "Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. These are the same thrones that we have seen throughout the book of Revelation, the thrones on which the 24 elders representing the faithful church of both covenants are seated. And it is they to whom the authority to judge was committed. Or as we find it in Daniel chapter 7, where those thrones are first described as being set up, this authority is given, this kingdom is given to the people of the saints of the Most High. John goes on, I saw the souls of those, the lives of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or in their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection, and here is where we have to ask ourselves that question. Do we really believe that we were dead in trespasses and sins and have been made alive with Christ and raised up and seated with Christ in heavenly places where we rule even now with him. If we do, then this term, the first resurrection, must be understood in terms of Romans 6, 1 to 13, John 11, 21 to 26, John 5, 24 to 29, second Corinthians 5:16 and 17, and Ephesians 2:1 through7. All of those references are in the printed study notes that you can download from wwwhighrivercrc.ca this afternoon. And that's to say nothing of John 3:16 and many other texts. We were dead, not mostly dead all dead in trespasses and sins. And God made us alive with Christ, and he raised us up with him, and he seated us with him in heavenly places. That's not a promise of eternal life to be obtained in the future. Jesus didn't say, the Gospel of John didn't say in 3.16, that one we all know so well, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whosoever shall believe in him will not perish but obtain eternal life in the future after the resurrection from the dead. If you are sitting here this morning and you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior and acknowledge him as Lord of your life you have been raised up with Christ right now you already have eternal life right now Because you live and believe in him, you will never die. You are a new creation. The old has come, has gone. The new has come. Now, this does not mean that your body doesn't have to die. They actually have to. In 1 Corinthians 15, it tells us that they have to. Like a seed dies to bring forth that plant. They have to die so that they can be raised immortal and incorruptible. But it does mean, it absolutely does mean that physical death... The death of this body that I inhabit has become irrelevant. So irrelevant that Jesus and Paul both describe, describe it like mere sleep when they're talking about true Christians. And we need to learn to see it that way so that we do not grieve as those who have no hope. Death is not the end. Of life. The death of this body in some ways is really the beginning. But I have eternal life now, and that cannot be taken away. There's something else for us here, too. Later in the chapter, beginning verse 11, John would write Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. Go back to Daniel chapter 9 um, this afternoon. I I wish we could do it now. We'll do it in the Bible study. But if you're not coming to the Bible study, go to Daniel chapter 9. Read it several times. Everything that is being described here is described There, and that's why John is being given this vision in these terms and using this language. The thrones and the books, all of these images come straight from Daniel chapter 9. And another book was opened which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And these would be very, very specifically the rest of the dead, referred to in verse 5 of Revelation 20. In other words, those who were not raised up and seated with Christ, but who remained dead in their trespasses and sins. Because we all love to quote John three sixteen and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but so that the world through him might be saved. We love to quote that. But in John's gospel, those words are followed by verses 18 and 19. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Good. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So understand, Jesus is the light. It's not that people love darkness, physical darkness, more so than physical light. Lots of people love to sin in the broad light of day. But people love the darkness rather than the light, rather than Jesus, because their works were evil. So in the end, those who have not believed will be judged. They will be judged according to what they have done. They will be judged according to what they have done in their rejection of God's only Son, because they loved darkness, And not the light. We've seen this so many times in Revelation where God sends judgment instead of people, instead of sinners falling on their knees and saying, Please, God, forgive us. They crawl into the caves and they cry out for the rocks and mountains to fall on them and to hide them from the one who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. That's because they love darkness rather than the light. As C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, The Great Divorce, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. To those who knock, it is opened. But for those who don't, verse 13, And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire, because in the end we all stand before God, just as we are, without one plea unless we are found to be raised up and seated with Christ in heavenly places, in which case we are judged not according to our works. Because if you're judged according to your own works, you will be found wanting. But if you are in Christ and Christ is in you, then you will be judged according to his works according to the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ attributed to you as a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So what are we to do with this? Well, verse 4 says, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. As David Chilton wrote in his commentary, in his ascension, Jesus brought us all to the throne. The reign of the saints is thus analogous to their worship. The whole of the church in heaven and on earth worships together before the throne of God, tabernacling in heaven. And if you prefer scripture, the apostle Peter declares, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And you are all of those things for this reason that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so we live. We have eternal life in Christ. Not so that we can focus on ourselves and our pleasures here in this world with some sort of guarantee that those pleasures will go on for all of eternity in the next That's not the point. It never was. It never will be. We have been given eternal life so that we can focus on the glory of the Lord God, the Almighty, and on the glory of his Son, Jesus Christ, and so that we can offer up our praise, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name, and so that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. There is so much more to say, but it's going to have to wait. And let me close with words from Hebrews chapter 12. The writer of Hebrews, you'll hear these a little later in the service too. But the writer of the Hebrews said, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. May we pray. Father, give us ears to hear what your Spirit is saying to the church through this ancient text, speaking to us in our modern world, speaking to us, reminding us, that we belong to you and that we have been called out of darkness to proclaim the excellency of our Savior Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.